Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, that it is timeless and true. We thank you that it gives us the tough instruction that we need to hear. It also gives us the encouraging uh, messages of your power and your strength and who you are. And Lord, those fill us. Those truths fill us and they root us and they empower us through your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning. That your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I used to work with the youth group at the church I used to pastor in Philadelphia, uh, when we had prayer time at the beginning of each meeting, sometimes the prayers sounded like this. Dear God, can I please get good grades and get the video game I want and be able to go to Dorney Park? And that's it. And move on to the next kid. And I would have to remind them that that that's it is not the way that we're supposed to end prayers and then move on to the, to the next kid. But some of the kids' uh, understanding of what prayer is mimics a lot of how we see prayer. We have a lot of confusion about it, maybe, and, we, and why even we're supposed to do it in the first place. If God is so sovereign and almighty over our lives, and he has this grand plan for our lives in the world, what's the point of praying? Doesn't he already know what he's going to do, whether or not we say anything about it? Praying even seems intimidating. How are we supposed to pray? What are we supposed to do so our prayers are effective? Is there a wrong way to pray? And today will be the first in a two-part series on prayer before we jump back into our series on 1 Corinthians. This morning, we'll take, a, the, we'll take a look at the how of prayer, how it works, what's going on when we pray, and how we should pray, more or less the theology of prayer, the how and what of prayer. And then next week, we'll take a look at the why of prayer, why we must pray, and why we must come together and pray together as a church family. What we discuss today will be the foundation for what we discuss next week, so plan on being here next Sunday as well. There's, there's my shameless plug. All right. Our focus uh, scripture reference today will be Matthew 21, 18 through 22, as you see there. But before we get to that, I want to lay some foundation for why Jesus says what he says in that passage. So the first point that we come to this morning is what is prayer? The simple answer one might venture to give is, well, obviously, it's talking to God. Right? That's the simple answer. It's talking to God. That's true, but let's take a step back and take everything in Scripture into account. Our understanding of prayer actually goes back before even the first man and woman were created. It goes back to eternity past, when the Trinity of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, were in perfect harmony and communion with each other, which continues on till today and, and eternity future. Our understanding of us as humans and our understanding of our communication with God starts with our understanding of the Trinity. 
Now, as we've been working our way through our current series in 1 Corinthians, we've seen time and time again that God's plan for salvation, as well as our restoration, relation to, and connection with him, was purposely designed by him to be impossible to access through human convention and wisdom. That's why when the most brilliant minds of humanity claim there is no God, that's not reason to doubt our faith. Rather, it's an affirmation of our faith because it simply affirms what we already know Scripture teaches. We cannot come to God through even the highest of human intelligence, reason, or wisdom. We can only come to God through the Holy Spirit opening our spiritual eyes to put our faith in Jesus. So in keeping with what we already know of what Scripture teaches us about God, it's no surprise then that even as believers in Jesus, with open spiritual eyes and understanding, we still will never fully understand the Trinity of God. We know that God is made up of three distinct persons, each fully God in nature and essence, and all three are also one. That's the definition of the Trinity. There have been multiple incomplete illustrations to try, try to describe the Trinity, but we will never fully understand him. And that's a source of peace for who would want to entrust their eternity to a God who they can fully grasp. I know I sure wouldn't. But what we do know is that within the Trinity, there is perfect love, honor, and for the sake of our discussion today, perfect communication and fellowship between the members of the Trinity. That directly informs our understanding of prayer. When we first meet humanity in the Bible, we start with a pile of dirt. That's what we start out with. All three members of the Trinity, we find out throughout the Bible, were all involved in the creation of the universe, earth, and us. The reason for our existence is in direct and inextricable connection with the involvement of the entire Trinity of our cre in our creation. We read in Genesis 1 that then God said, let us, plural, make human beings in our image to be like us. That term image, along with the phrase be like us, described that we were to be reflective of God's communicable attributes. For example, love, justice, wisdom, etc. And thus representatives of him in those attributes, albeit always in a limited and finite reflection and representation. According to one biblical scholar, what this description also includes is that we were always designed to have the capability of having spiritual fellowship with indescribable God. Now that's huge. When the members of the Trinity communicated amongst themselves why they were creating humanity, they decided to make humanity have the capability and ability to have a spiritual connection with them. They didn't need to do that. In fact, they didn't do that with any other created thing. And they already have perfect love and fellowship with each other. But in their love and wisdom, they decided to form a being with a spiritual component, a soul, that could be in direct connection and communication with them. When that being broke 
that originally intended full restora- a full connection with God because they were not content to merely be his reflection and representatives, but be like God themselves, complete with his de- decision-making ability and sovereignty, the Trinity could have left it at that too. They could have just left us to wallow in our hopeless and broken state with only an eternity of banishment from his presence to look forward to. In human understanding, they had every right to do that, and that's what we deserved. But God's love is unfathomable. It does not work according to what we can understand or think should happen. And thank God for that, amen? And get this, because God is all-knowing and had a perfect plan already decided upon from eternity past, God knew we were going to break our fellowship with him well before he already created us because he already planned on it. I don't think we'll ever understand why, but perhaps it was so that we could actually catch a glimpse at his unexplainable level of love for us. Even when he planned for us to turn our backs on him at the same exact time, he already had a plan in place to redeem us from our abandonment of him. At the perfect time in human history, as Paul put it in Galatians, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, in perfect obedience to the Father, was sent to earth to pay the price of death we had no hope of paying ourselves. This is our only hope as humans. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That is our only hope. With Jesus' death and resurrection, we suddenly had the hope of restoration with the Trinity of God by putting our trust in Jesus taking our place and asking God for his forgiveness of our sin. We all have the opportunity to do that. And when we do, we are restored to all the members of the Trinity. And we have that spiritual fellowship with God restored. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension, we now have this relationship with each of the members of the Trinity and how we relate to them in spiritual fellowship with them. We now have Jesus as our mediator and high priest between us and God the Father. First Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. As our high priest and sacrifice, Jesus is able to give us the opportunity to enter God the Father's holy presence, once only allowed to be experienced by the earthly Israelite priest once a year, In the earthly tabernacle, we read in the book of Hebrews, So then, we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can enter heaven's most holy place, the holy of holies, because of the blood of Jesus. Not only do we have Jesus as our mediator and high priest, but we gain him as a brother who understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses and struggles. He gets what we're going through. We read this, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. But he felt those temptations. He felt 
those testings and those difficult times. And Jesus, though not in an exact sense, calls us his brothers and sisters. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Did you know that Jesus is not ashamed to call each and every one of you who have put your faith in him his brother or sister? That's an incredible gift. We can identify with him as our brother and our friend, as well as having the authority to be our mediator and high priest before most holy God. As such, when we come under the authority and blood of Jesus, in essence, in Jesus' name, when we close our prayers, we have been given the opportunity that every single person in Israel before Jesus thought was impossible. Our restoration to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus gives us the incredible opportunity to enter God the Father's presence with our thanksgiving and requests. Wow. We have that as an opportunity. Not only that, but we're also encouraged by Scripture to do that. Not with timidity, but with spiritual boldness. We also read in Hebrews, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. When we usually pray, that's what we need to envision. Because that's really what's going on beyond this physical world. When we pray, we are actually spiritually entering the most holy part of heaven and coming before the very throne of God the Father, most holy God. That would be intimidating and would probably discourage us from ever doing that, but because we come with Jesus being our mediator, we come with boldness. He's the one who gives us the strength and the boldness to do that. This is not to say that we come flippantly or disrespectfully, but we can come with requests that may even seem outlandish to us that we think we have no right to ask of Him. That, even of itself, is a tremendous gift that has been opened up for us. Not only that, but we've been given the opportunity to both Yes, think of God the Father as most holy God and King of the universe, but also to think of Him as our heavenly Father. In our restoration to God, Jesus' death and resurrection has given us the opportunity to be adopted as children of most holy God and have Him as our Father. John 1 tells us, But to all who believed Him, and, and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical uh, birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. It's supposed to be John. What does this position of child of God include? Well, Paul writes in Romans 8 that we can cry out to him as Abba, Father. I know both Men's and ladies' Bible studies have already gone through that, I'm sure. Abba, Father. Do you know what Abba means? And it's Aramaic for Papa. That's what it means. According to one biblical scholar, it was usually the first word a child would speak. It was the most intimate way a child could refer and address their father. Think of it today as the equivalent of Dada, you know, the first word. That's incredible 
isn't it? Because of Jesus, we can not only enter the throne room of God the Father as King and Creator, but also as Dada, Daddy. But unlike many earthly fathers, our Heavenly Father is perfect in His love, provision, plan, instruction, discipline, grace, and mercy. And as our Heavenly Father, our Dada, He wants to hear about our day. He wants to hear about what we're struggling with. He wants to hear what we need and even what we want. He wants to hear us tell Him how much we love Him. And as our Heavenly Dada, God the Father wants to tell us how much He loves us and how He's taking care of us. That's also what's going on when we pray. Yes, he's sovereign and already knows what he's planned for us and how he's going to provide for us and what's going to happen down the road. But the intimacy Jesus won for us tells us that he also wants to hear from us about everything, just as a good earthly father wants to hear all about and be involved with what his kids are going through and doing and need. Lastly, there's one more person of the Trinity involved when we pray and that's the Holy Spirit whereas God the Father is in his throne room in heaven and God the Son is sitting at his right hand presenting himself before God the Father as our mediator and high priest this third person of the Trinity is literally within us making a home within us when we put our trust in Jesus this third person of the Trinity acts as a down payment for our heavenly home and thus seals us for that day, instructs us in our understanding of God's word, directs our steps and where we should go in life, convicts us about sin, but also plays a major role when we pray. Firstly, the Holy Spirit is the one who every minute of every day, especially in our lowest and darkest days, even in the, in the deepest spiritual way possible, reminds us of who we are as believers in Jesus. He's the one who spiritually connects with us and spiritually communicates to us that we are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Papa, Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. You're not the one that has to keep reminding yourself about that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He's spiritually communicating that to you every minute of every day. Hold on to that truth every second of every day. Write it down and post it all over. Your house, your computer screen, your dashboard. You don't need to remind yourself of anything. It's the spirit indwelling you that's reminding you of your position as a child of God. Rely and rest in that. Because of that, we have this tremendous gift when it comes to prayer. We read it. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. 
Not only do we have no reason to feel intimidated to come before God in prayer because of Jesus as our mediator, but we have no reason to feel intimidated to come before God in prayer because even when we have no clue what we're supposed to be praying about, especially in our darkest and most heart-wrenching of times, we don't need to worry about it. God the Spirit is groaning before God the Father on our behalf, praying for what we're supposed to be praying for. So the excuse of, well, I don't even know where to begin in prayer. So I'm just not going to, does not make any theological sense. God just wants to hear from you. And the Holy Spirit is praying for the things we really should be praying for, but don't know it yet. And that gives us tremendous freedom. The Holy Spirit then, as He grows our faith, teaches us what we should be praying for in alignment with God's perfect will. See, we start out in our new faith and uh, restored relationship with God by praying like children. But as the Spirit stretches us and grows us and heals us and matures us in that faith, our prayers grow and they come more and more into alignment with what God wants us to be praying for according to His will. In Romans 12, Paul says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, what is good and pleasing and perfect. So rather than keeping us from praying, the Holy Spirit's growth and transformation of us drives us to pray even more as he reveals more and more of God's will to us. Praying on a daily basis as part of our transformation process reveals more and more of God's will to us. You might be sitting here thinking, I don't know what God wants me to do with my life right now. I'm sort of at a crossroads and I don't really know what he wants me to do. Have you tried just praying more in general as part of the process of the spirit revealing that to you. All of what we've covered connects to our passage this morning. You might have wondered when we were going to get to that. We've seen what role the members of the Trinity of God had in our creation, in our restoration, and in our current relationship with Him. So what about this audacious claim that Jesus makes in Matthew 21, 18 through 20, directly connects to how we should Pray. And that brings us to our second point. How should we pray? So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew 21. We're going to be starting in verse 18 and reading through uh, verse 22. It's in the New Testament. If you didn't bring one with you, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. I want us all to see this. Matthew chapter 21 starting in verse 18. And we read, Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, 
But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. It's a pretty audacious claim, wouldn't you say? The disciples were flabbergasted that a few mere words from Jesus could make an entire tree just wither out of nowhere. Noting their bewilderment, Jesus uses it as a teaching moment about how they should pray. He even makes the astonishing statement that whatever they pray for in faith, they will receive. So what about the things we pray for, but we don't receive them? What about physical healing, or the righting of a wrong, or the provision of better employment, or a living situation that we just don't have? Did Jesus lie? Did Jesus make these words up? We get a bit of a better understanding of this in James's rebuke to the church that he writes to, the churches he writes to, and he says, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you do not have what you want because you don't ask God for it, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Sometimes we don't have what we ask from God because we ask for it with selfish motives and what we think will make us happy. Sometimes we don't have what we ask God for because we're really only thinking about ourselves. That's the wrong way to pray. So there is a wrong way to pray. So what's the right way to pray? The right way is having a proper understanding of our relationship to the members of the Trinity when we pray. We can only come to God the Father with Jesus as our mediator and under his authority. We have a proper balance of seeing him both as our king, whom we seek to please with our lives, and as our papa. And we surrender ourselves on a daily basis to the Holy Spirit's transformation of us, surrendering every area of our lives to him, and he will reveal more of God's will to us and what we should be praying for. So no, it's not a magic formula of what will be the most effective prayer. Don't buy that book you see on the shelf. Rather, it's the focus on our relationship with God and our position before him that most affects how we should pray. James comes right out and says this, the earnest prayer of a righteous person, someone who's seeking to live their life right with God, has great power and produces wonderful results. There's no magic formula. It's the passionate prayer of somebody who is focusing their life on building the kingdom of God and seeking to make every area of their lives right with him. The person focused on seeking the kingdom of God and pleasing him with their lives will pray big things to a big God knowing that God can do it. These things are not for their benefit, but for God's accomplishment of his will and growth of his kingdom. That's why Jesus in, in his model for us to pray says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, it's all based on God's will. We pray big things to a big God, knowing he can do it, but also leaving everything in his hands as to if he will do it. 
You see, God's bigger picture goal for us is to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's God's goal for us as his children and as believers. If what we pray for in faith will help us to become more and more like Christ and give God glory, we will receive it. That's wrapped up in the phrase, in faith. Our understanding of the importance of, of our transformation in our prayers. That's not a discouragement to praying. In fact, it's motivation and greater encouragement to pray more and to grow in our prayers and to grow in our faith, which in turn will grow us in our prayers. Why? Because as we've already seen, our Father wants to hear from us. And as we pour out our hearts to him, we grow closer in our love for him. And the closer we grow to him, the more we see and experience his love for us. At the same time, the indwelling Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf and transforming and growing us into being able to see more and more of God's will. That alignment enhances our prayers and makes them effective because we're not focused on the prayers themselves, but on the spiritual growth that reveals more and more of God's will. Do you see that? That, in turn, grows our faith, which, in turn, grows our prayers. Since, as Jesus notes here, our faith is directly connected to our prayers, the bigger our faith gets, the bigger our prayers get. But since that growing faith is only bringing us more and more into alignment with God's will, those audaciously big prayers will be effectively answered because they were part of God's plan anyway. See, it all connects. And it's not some magic words or incantations or focus on a specific formula. It's all directly related to our relationship with the members of the Trinity that affects and grows our faith and therefore our prayers. Now that we see what prayer really is in connection with the members of the triune God and therefore how we should pray in faith, let us exercise that. Let us exercise our prayers as we allow the Spirit to exercise our faith. As the Spirit grows our faith, our prayers will follow suit and we will see God work in miraculous ways. But our praying has to start somewhere. We are to also walk according to the Spirit and have an ongoing connection with Him and in that way have an ongoing time of communication with God throughout the day. But we're also to set time aside each day as a kid would at the dinner table with his dad to have a heart-to-heart -heart with our Father. If you don't make that time for each day, start today as an essential part of your faith and therefore prayer growth. In addition, and we'll get more into this next week, there's something powerful that happens when we gather together as a family around the dinner table, so to speak, to communicate with our Father. The early church was continually devoting themselves to prayer. Continually and devoting themselves to prayer. They did this because they knew how essential it was, not only for their own personal faith growth, but for the growth of the church. If the church was going to go anywhere, if the church was going was to grow, it was going to be based on how, how much they were continually devoting themselves to praying for it. 
So I strongly encourage everyone here to also see the essentialness, the essentiality of this to our faith and our church and come out to our Wednesday night prayer meeting. Prayer is a, beaut- is a, is a, is a powerful thing when it's unleashed by God's children coming together as one. Let us be in awe of the incredible gift that we've been given in fellowshipping and communicating with the triune God. Let us not take it for granted, but let us use it for all it's worth, but in our own lives and in the life of our church. Let us surrender ourselves to the Spirit's growing of our faith, so our prayers will grow too, and we can witness God's power go forth and change lives. The Apostle John put this as perfectly as I could think of. And he says, this is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we could spend getting a crash course, perhaps, in, uh, in prayer. What it is, what's going on, and how we should pray. Lord, we thank you that it's directly connected to our faith growth, and that's directly connected to each area that we surrender to you, each area that we surrender to your transformation, each area that we give up to you changing and, and making more into the image of your Son. So, Lord, I pray that we would take this seriously, that if we, if we want to see our prayers grow into bigger and bigger prayers, we would see to it that our faith is also growing and that that's directly connected to our surrendering our, of ourselves to you on a daily basis. Lord, I pray that as we read your word on a daily basis, that you would speak to us through your spirit, reveal more and more of who you are and what your will is to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.